Well, this morning, I'm starting the first of two messages that will close out this series on the home. And of course, we'll be talking about marriage, talking about marriage these next two weeks. Um, I've, I've been looking forward to this message because marriage is something that Megan and I are passionate about in our ministry, um, not just because you're, that's what you're supposed to do as a pastor, um, and not because it's, we happen to be married, so it's not just that. We've seen in our ministry, in our years together, how uh, the enemy is coming against marriages. There's a full-out assault against marriage in the world today, and it doesn't matter what country you live in, what culture you're a part of, what language you speak, marriage is under attack. And this morning, I want to create a context or paint a picture for us, kind of get the ball rolling about, about some, some big ideas about what marriage is. I want us to orient ourselves to a biblical understanding of marriage, and then next week we'll deal with some practical points so that the two parts will fit together. Um, but this morning is really about looking and orienting ourselves towards what is God's design for marriage. And as, as, as we understand that more clearly, we'll understand why marriage is under attack. See, because Satan understands God's design for marriage. Satan understands that there is power in marriage, that discipleship happens in marriage, that children are raised in, 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 in the midst of a healthy marriage to, to serve God. And because of that, he comes against marriage, and he has from the very beginning. So I want you to open in your Bibles this morning to two places. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, actually Genesis 2 and 3, and then Ephesians chapter 5. Genesis 2 and 3, and then Ephesians 5. Have you ever been hiking or out for a walk or in a store, <laughs> and you get disoriented, and, and you, don't, you, you just lose your way a little bit? You're trying to figure out which way you should be going. You know, you hear about hikers up in these mountains uh, on these trails who will go for a hike and maybe get a little dehydrated or, uh, you know, take a wrong turn, and the next thing you know, they're... They have no idea how to get back. The trees all start looking the same. The mountains all start looking the same. Then there's helicopters coming in, and then they're on the news, and, and they're just disoriented. In fact, a good friend of ours, uh, her, her dad and um, uh, her brother, I think his brother, in fact, it's Deb Ward's brother-in-law, um, had gone fishing up in the mountains and got lost. And they were up there overnight uh, without the right gear, had to fly in the helicopters, the sheriffs came in and had to lift them out. I mean, when you get disoriented, it's not a fun feeling, not knowing where you are. I feel like that in some malls. You ever been in a mall and you're like, okay, how do I get out? Or if, you know, you just, you just get a little lost. I know when I was a kid, I would go shopping with my mom, and my mom's not a very tall woman, but she's a fast walker. Any fast walkers? In the, in the, like as a kid, you're like, slow down, mom. Well, you lose your mom in the midst of a, of a department store. And as a kid, you're like, I'm, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life in this store. Um, this is it. This is, this is my life. It's no fun being disoriented. Well, I want us to orient ourselves this morning. I want us to get a perspective on what marriage is because I believe what enemy wants to bring into a lot of homes, what to every home, is he wants us to be disoriented. He wants us to lose our way. He wants our marriages to be kind of like fumbling through the dark, trying to, trying to figure out up and down, left and right, trying to go, okay, how do, how do we do this thing? And how do, or sometimes, how do we get out of this? And God's like, no, 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 that's not, there's no exit strategy here. I didn't, I didn't design that. Get, get back, get oriented. 
And when we are not oriented, confusion comes and, and we start fighting with each other instead of for each other and there's uh, just a lack of peace uh, in the home. See, when they build a building and it used to be before technology and the things that we have in place, now building techniques, when they build buildings out of stone and, and rock thousands of years ago, what they would do is lay a cornerstone for the building. And the cornerstone would be a perfectly square stone, and it was larger than the other stones. It would become the point of the building that everything was oriented to. In fact, the builder would look down the side of the wall and, and, and down the sight line and look at the wall and make sure that it was square with the cornerstone. And so both directions, to the left and to the right, and then vertically they would always go back to where's the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone telling us and are we in line with where we're supposed to be? It was a point of orientation. We start losing our, our way. In fact, farmers do this, right, when they're plowing a field. You might not know this. Um, it, they say if a farmer is looking back at the plow, the, the furrow is just going to go all over the place. But what the farmer does is finds a fixed point on the horizon and orients himself and then just points the tractor at that. And you end up with a straight furrows, the, 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 the ground gets plowed in an orderly way. Well, we need that ordering, that, that, that uh, orientation point in our lives. In fact, I would suggest this morning that marriage is the capstone of the family, and Jesus is the capstone or the cornerstone of marriage. So marriage is the cornerstone of the home, and Jesus is the cornerstone of the marriage. At least that's what he intends. That's, that, that's what his intent is. And so we have to look at Scripture and go, okay, Lord, how do we orient ourselves then to who you are and what your design is for marriage? We have to understand, first of all, though, that marriage is not and should not be based on convenience. Marriage based on convenience, convenience is never a good thing. We don't get married because, well, it seemed like it was a convenient thing to do. Right? Proximity. Oh, we just happen to be at the same place at the same time. No, not a good basis for marriage. Is it a little warm in here? Okay. It's, someone hit the, there's just a couple of those turner, uh, the little timers. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, it's, it's toasty. <laughs> marriage cannot be based on mutual interest. Hey, we both like some of the same things, so that's a good reason to get married. No, it's not. Because interests change. Physical attraction is not a good reason to get married. It's definitely, in fact, it's one of the worst reasons to get married. Because people change. We were looking at, at wedding pictures yesterday. We were showing some pictures uh, of when, uh, when we got married, Megan and I. And, and I'm looking at this picture and I'm like, she looks almost exactly the same. And I'm looking at me going, wow, I don't look anything the same. Physical attraction is not, you know, it's a part of it, and God's wired us that way, but it's not, cannot be the basis for marriage. Sexual fulfillment cannot be the basis for marriage. Cannot be the basis for marriage. God has, has designed marriage to, to be something special. In fact, it's the, it's the first institution established by God in this world. It's the first thing that God set in place. He said, this is something I've designed. It's my idea. Two people coming together for a specific purpose. See, the only, the only foundation or the, the, the best reason, the only good reason to get married is because two people come together. 
And sure, there's attraction and there's like. I say people, you know, you're in deep like. Oh, no, we're not, no, we're deep love. No, you're in deep like. The love, that develops over time. And God will use those things, but at the end of the day, it's when a man and a woman say, God, is this what you have for us? And to hear from the Lord, yes, yes, this is the right person. And I think too few people, way too few people in our world today, in the church, don't go to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, am I making a good choice here? And they base it on things that the world would base it on. Right, it's an e-harmony, like, what, 24 points of compatibility. No, there's one point of compatibility. Is God in the midst of this? Is this something that he's ordaining? And so that's a first step. And so marriage can't be based on those things. It has to be based in, in who God is and what he's saying the direction for your life is. Book of Matthew, Jesus talks about houses that stand. In fact, the verse in 12, Matthew twelve twenty five says this. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. God has designed marriage in such a way that two people come together and they become one, and they stand as one. And we'll read in a few minutes out of Ephesians, God says, just like the church, Jesus is in the, in the church, the church is his bride, and he has made them one, he's knit them together, that a man and a woman in marriage become one, and in that unity they stand, but when division comes, destruction happens, things fall apart, they don't end up the way that God intended. I'm not a musician, um, I own a couple of guitars, but I'm not a musician by any means. But I do know when an instrument is out of tune or when someone's singing and trying to sing in harmony and they're not, they're not hitting that note, right? They're just off key a bit. You can hear it, can't you? You don't have to be an expert. You just know. You're like, that, that doesn't work. That's out of harmony. It's out of sync. God's design in marriage is that two people would come together and, and harmonize. That's why we say there's no harmony in the home. Things that add discord, they're, they're at odds with each other. But God's design is that two people, a man and a woman, would come together and be in perfect harmony with each other. And we know, when, you don't have to be a, a marriage and family therapist to know when things are not harmonizing in your home. Am I right? When things are dis, disharmony in your home, you're like, oh, this just doesn't feel right. And it affects us. Because God has wired us to be a certain way. God has designed the church, I mean, rather that the home would stand. But it can only stand when there is no division in the home. There has to be unity. I want to, I want to pause for a second. I want to just address this real quick. What I'm painting here is God's intended design for marriage. Now, I recognize that in this room and, and in our culture, that not all marriages are going to, you're not going to hold this, you know, God's word and go, yep, everyone fits. I recognize that, that, there are, that divorce happens, that brokenness happens, that, that there things take place in the home and in the marriage that, that bring disunity. And here's what I know, that even though we are addressed what God's ideal is, his design is, that there's also a gracious God. He's a gracious God, and he says, I'll meet you where you are. I love that we never get to a point where God goes, that's it, you're done, I can't do anything with you now. 
You messed up. It's over. Let's just move on to the next person. In fact, it's for that reason that Jesus came. Because we are broken and we have a propensity to messing things up. But he says, I'm bigger than that and I can bring restoration and healing to things that are already being broken. So this morning, please hear my heart. My desire is not to bring condemnation. I want us to have a clear biblical understanding so that we have a starting point. So that we're, no matter where you are, whether you've never been married and desire to get married, whether you're engaged and getting ready to get married, if you're married and, and you've been married for years, or maybe you're divorced, divorced and remarried, it doesn't matter. God says, I can move in the midst of your circumstances, but you have to come back to the basic understanding. We have to correct anything that's out of skew, out of plumb, and out of alignment with God, what God's intent is. Does that sound good? All right. God designed a home to stand. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when he creates this incredible garden. In fact, he creates everything. The world around us, everything we see, all the animals, the sky, the plants, everything, the stars, the sun, the moon. And, in, and over those six days in creation, God very intentionally and very orderly, because we've established he's a God of order, he establishes everything in its place. And then everything leads to this moment where he forms man out of the dust of the earth. And he breathes life into man. He breathes life. His very breath, his pneuma, his, his life breathes into man and man comes to life. And there's this relationship that now exists between man and God. God has created this perfect place for man to live. And in Genesis chapter 2, starting verse 18, it says this, The Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. That's quite a job, isn't it? And, and, and the amazing thing is I love the trust that God has. He says, hey, I made them, but you name them. That's pretty cool. God had an intent for men. It says that, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord, God, God, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Love that God says that for this reason a, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. Adam, and, Adam didn't have a mom and a dad, did he? So he wasn't referencing Adam and that was, that's for our benefit. Adam didn't have a mom and dad to leave, but God's setting a pattern here and saying, listen, my intent is that the two become one, that there's a unity that exists. See, God created marriage for a few reasons. First of all, marriage is created for this relationship with God. Adam and Eve together had a relationship with God. Now, it wasn't a joint relationship. And this is something in marriage I think sometimes we get, get a little wrong in, our, in our, our Western Christian thinking is like we get married and now we have a joint bank account. 
We don't get married and have a joint relationship with Jesus. You each have a relationship with the Lord, and it's yours to grow and cultivate and grow in. But what I think what happens so often is we start growing at different rates in our marriage, in our relationship with the Lord, rather. And we start comparing, well, my wife seems to be more mature. She's growing faster than I am. And then guys will kind of shy back and go, well, well, I, I'm not as good as that. I don't, I don't measure up. Or, or a woman will look at her husband and go, well, I don't have the gifts that he has. Well, he can speak and he can do this and he can do that and I don't have that. And man, God's blessed him more than he's blessed me. And it's dangerous ground. It's dangerous ground because we're not created the same, right? We're not created the same, amen? God's created us differently and he's created us to each have a relationship with him. But it's when we bring that together, the fact that we both have a relationship in a marriage relationship, we both have a relationship with God. He says, I'm going to speak to you individually. And when you come together and compare notes about what I'm doing, as you pray together, as you grow together, you're going to be, you're going to stand in awe of who I am and what I'm doing in your life. So it's not the same, it's not a shared relationship with God, it's an individual thing, but there's unity there as well. And God says, I want to move. So we're created first for relationship with God. Adam and Eve spent time with God in, in the garden, they walked with him, and they had perfect union with the Lord. They were created for relationship with each other. It's not good for man to be alone. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. It's not good. See, because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are not alone. The Trinity, the three in one, there's relationship and unity that exists there. And God says, I created man in my image. And yes, there's a relationship with God. But he says, but there needs to be another person. First for relationship. And so we were created for relationship with each other. But then also we were created to fulfill a specific role. God says to Adam, hey, here's these animals I've created. Would you name them? No small undertaking. And he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create someone to come alongside of him and be the perfect complement to he, who he is. So together they can accomplish the roles and the purposes I have for them in the garden. And it's a beautiful picture. God did an amazing work in that place. And of course, we know that sin enters the picture. And Adam and Eve make a decision to reject God, to walk in disobedience. In fact, God had given Adam the instruction, don't eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from these trees. I've put them in the middle of the garden. Don't eat. And Adam and Eve, through a temptation from, from Satan, say, oh, we're going to do that. We're going we're gonna to eat some of that fruit. And Satan starts introducing, in fact, he says to Adam, he says to Eve, did God really say, and he starts questioning the authority of God in their lives to the point that they together, Adam and Eve together, decide, you know what, let's go ahead and try it. And that relationship with God becomes broken and things start falling apart because there's no unity. They get disoriented. And it's amazing is here in, the, in, in chapter 2 says that they were, uh, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. But after the fall, after sin, they become, their eyes are open and they realize we're naked and they're ashamed and they start making clothes for themselves. But here's the thing. 
God doesn't stop there. He doesn't hit the reset button and go, okay, let's try this again. Just wipe it clean. Let's do something new. His heart is broken. And when he comes to Adam and Eve, he says, what is this thing you've done? What is it you've done? And they have all kinds of excuses and reasons and blame that, that happens. But God doesn't just obliterate them and say, you know what, I'm starting over. He starts setting in place a plan for restoration, a plan for restoration, redeeming the consequences of the fall. And Adam and Eve become a critical component of that redeeming process. He still has a plan. In Genesis 3, verse 16, it says this, To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Not a very popular passage, right? Not a very, like, you read that and go, oh, praise the Lord. It's more like, thanks a lot, Eve. (laughs) We didn't have to have that pain. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And we read that in our culture, in our context, and go, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to happen. Yet there's something hidden in here of God's heart of love for us and his care. And so again, this is why this orienting process is so important. So we have a correct understanding and we don't overlay our cultural uh, biases over the word of God and start saying, no, 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 that's not for me. You don't use that word submit. You don't use that word rule. God says, no, if you understand my heart behind this, it will unlock could I say some of the secrets that God has for a successful marriage, though they're not big secrets. He's just written them right there in our word and his word, and we just have to discover those things. You see, the fall brought destruction to God's intended purposes. See, we go from unity to manipulation. Satan, Satan enters the scene and he starts tempting, and now it's, it's this relationship with Adam and Eve that was perfectly united and perfectly united with God. Now there's this manipulative aspect. Like, try it, come on. Because I did, now you should. And together they manipulate each other into a place where they make the worst decision of their lives. And then they start, then that slips right into blame. Well, the woman you gave me, the woman, and then the woman says, well, the, the serpent, right, the snake, it was him. And blame enters, and, and, and more and more things just get fragmented and broken. And then there's the shame component. Before, I didn't care that I was naked. It was, all, it was fine because there was no reason to be, to be shamed at all. But now because I'm aware of my sin, and it wasn't the physical nakedness, it was the sin. It was the iniquity that had entered their hearts now I feel exposed and I feel like I've got to cover this up. And God sees right through that and division comes. And so God says these things, I will, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing and in pain you will give birth to children. There's consequence to sin. There's consequence to sin. But he says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What is God saying? What's his goal here? His desire in this is this, and the reason he says these things is this. He wanted them to pursue each other instead of living independently. They needed to, to continue to need each other, to be with each other. See, after the fall, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve have the opportunity to just do their own thing. 
They wouldn't have done it before because God had given Eve to Adam. He brought Eve to Adam and said, here, the two of you will become one. But after the fall and after the shame and the, 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 the manipulation and the, and the blame starts happening, they could have lived separate lives. They could have gone their own way. And God says, no, I'm going to put something in you that's going to cause you to need each other, even when you don't like it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's lots of head. Even on those days, you're like, I can't stand you. But man, I, I need you. It's in us, isn't it? It's wired into who we are because God put it there. He says, listen, I want you to contend for this because I'm working a plan and Jesus is going to come and there's going to be restoration. But until that time, I need you to need each other and to rely on each other. Adam, if Eve had no desire for her husband, if she knew that having children would be painful, she'd be like, uh-uh, not going to happen, right? <laughs> I'm not walking through that. And maybe after the first time, I'm never doing that again. Right? How many people after having a baby, how many women after having their first child are like, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> and then to realize, no, I'm not. And then after this, I'm done, really done. God says, your desire will be for your husband because I'm, doing, I'm working a plan here. And yes, there's going to be consequence to the sin, but I'm a redeeming God and I want to bring the two back together. Your desire will be for your husband. And then he says, you, he will rule over you. And that one kind of gets stuck in our throat a little bit. He will rule over you. See, the picture here is not one of domination. It's not one of the man lording over the woman saying, I'm the head of you and you just do what I say, woman. Right? We see that in, culture, in our culture, not just here, but even around the world. Woman, you just do what I say. We had a pastor years ago who used to joke like that. He'd, go, he'd tell his wife, woman. If you met his wife, you're like, yeah, she never responded to that. There's no way. The intent is not domination. It's the same word, rule, is, is the, the picture of the sun ruling over the day and the moon ruling overnight. God didn't intend that the sun would dominate the day. The sun gave light and warmth. The sun caused things to grow, to flourish. Picture greenhouse. And at night, if there was no relief from the sun, things would get scorched. So God brings the night and there's the moon to give light at night, but also to refresh in the evening. And so the picture that God says, uh, gives of the man ruling over the woman is not one of domination. It's one of care and protection and covering. It's a stewardship and a servant assignment that God gave to the man. He says, you, you have a job to do just in the same way that you named the animals. Now you're outside of the garden and yes, you're going to work the land and it's going to be hard and the sweat of your brow and all of that and, and you're going to toil and it's going to be hard work. But your primary role is to care for your wife, to steward well the woman I brought to you that I paired up with you, that I partnered with you so that I can maintain some of the intent that I had in the garden for what marriage would be. God had to orient them towards each other. Because after sin, they were disoriented and they were going their own way. God says, I've got to give you what you need so that you can come back to each other. 
but that you can be facing each other so you can be brought to each other, fight for each other. And so we have to properly orient our marriages. We have to make sure that we're facing the direction that God wants us to be facing, that we're moving the way that God wants us to be moving. A husband and a wife, not the same roles. Not the same roles. That we're designed to have different roles, have different kinds of authority that don't compete with each other but partner with each other and come together and make something amazing. God introduces the idea of headship into the world. See, because in the garden we didn't need headship. We were just in perfect unity with each other and with him. And it was just this incredible relationship. But because of sin, he now has to institute and put in place a flow of authority so that people will be kept in check. So they will come back and say, God, okay, you're in control. And we sang this morning, I surrender all. I surrender all. Why? Because and there's something in my life, I just want to do my own thing. And I get married, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And then I realize, man, I'm butting heads with this person who, who just a few weeks ago, I was like, I can't wait to walk down the aisle or receive you. I didn't walk down the aisle. We didn't do it that way. I, I was at the, and I just cried, and Megan's coming. And then you walk into marriage, and you're like, oh, this is hard. This is hard. It's not, oh, yeah. No, this is hard work from day one. How many, how many, <laughs> Had an argument on your honeymoon. Anyone have like, and you're like, Psh, things fell apart. Like, <laughs> probably, he's like, I don't even remember. <laughs> it's hard work. And God says, listen, I have to set things in place so that you can win. So you have what you need. And so he introduces headship, a flow of authority. We have to pro- properly orient our marriages. So with that being said, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. Ephesians 5, 21. A short verse that simply says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit is not a favorite word of anyone. From the time we're two years old, right? I will not submit to a boy who... His mom, he's standing on the chair, and his mom says, sit down. No, sit down. No. And then, you know, the back and forth. You've been there, right? Finally, he sits down, and he's just, he goes, I'm, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> when we get that attitude in our hearts, like, I will not submit. I will not. No. And God says here to us in Ephesians through the Apostle Paul, submit to each other. Why? Because it's a good idea or things just work better that way? No. Out of reverence for Christ. Our cornerstone is Jesus. That point of reference for us has to be, always be, only be Jesus Christ. See, because if it starts becoming my needs, my desires, my wants, my persuasions, my opinions, my whatever, I'm going to start having a life that just goes all over the place. But he says, submit to each other. Put each other ahead of yourselves. Say, you know what, it's not, I, I, I don't want to just take care of me. I want to I bless other people. That's what submitting is. It's not like, again, it's not that domination 
But man, I'm going to believe that people care. I'm going to believe that my wife cares about me and my children care about me and that, that I care about them. And so I'm going to submit myself to their care because when I do, man, things go well. I get in line. I orient properly to where I need to be. And so it starts with a reverence for Christ. We don't just do these things, well, because it seems like a good idea or it's going to make my life a little easier. It's not like submission just greases the wheel. Submission out of reverence for Christ, it orients us to where we need to be oriented. It keeps our eyes fixed to where we need to be fixed. So that every day, literally, it's the, it's the most incredible tool. That every day when my heart starts, and I get up and we're frustrated with each other, maybe Megan and I are having an argument or the kids, are, and you're just like, and I can stop and go, wait a minute, let me orient myself to Jesus Christ. See, because I realize that the enemy's doing something here to bring a work of division just exactly the same way that he did in the garden. How many times has the Lord said, I mean, not the Lord, rather. How many times has the enemy said to you, did God really say? Did he really say? Did she really say? And he starts twisting the words and the opinions or the facial expressions. Did he just look at me like that? Text messages. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, that's not going What does that mean? Why did you type that in all caps? Right? Well, and the enemy will capitalize on those things and say, you know, I'm going to bring discord into your life. And you can stop at any point and go, wait. Let me orient myself to Jesus and to his desire for my life and to his plan for my life and to his way of doing things. What does he say? Submit. Don't fight for your own way. Submit. Let go of your foolish pride. It would drive you to a place where you don't make good decisions. Can I get an amen? Right? Stop for a second and say, Jesus, what do you have? I mean, those years ago, those bracelets, right? WWJD. What would Jesus do? Just look at what is God's desire, what's his intent, and orient yourself to the cornerstone of your life. And your marriage and every relationship you will ever have. Out of reverence for Christ, it brings honor and glory to him. Begins with Jesus because he is the head. And if we don't have Jesus as the head, headship in the home just runs amok. And it creates more damage than it does good. See, because we're designed for headship. We're designed to be under authority because of the way that God has built us. See, but if I try to be the head of my home without first putting Jesus first in my life, I'm just going to damage people. I'm going to say what I think needs to be said and not come back and say, Lord, what will you say? I'm going to use a tone of voice that's offensive and harsh and critical rather than coming and saying, Lord, how do you want me to say this? There's things I need to do. There's things I need to say in my home, but I don't want it to come across as being offensive and hurtful and damaging So, Lord, give me the wisdom. Give me the words to say. And he will. He will. I guarantee you, he will. But so often, we're just, we're running a million miles an hour, and we're functioning out of our tiredness and our busyness and our frustration and our pain, right? We come into marriage with all kinds of baggage, and now you're on the receiving end of stuff you didn't even do. It's not even your fault. And you're like, whoa, what's going on? 
And if we would stop, and yes, there's, there's things that you can do. There's counseling and there's books you can read and all of this stuff. But can I just say, if we would just stop for a second and say, Lord, what do you have? What's your intent? Jesus, be my cornerstone. So much of what comes into our homes and wreaks havoc would just be stopped. The Bible says, in fact, in Genesis, God says, I'm going to give you the authority to crush on that serpent's head. The one who introduced the pain, the confusion, the disorientation, you're going to have the authority to crush his head. And in Jesus Christ, we have the authority to say, you know what, you have no power, you have no place. Jesus is the head. And so headship is so critical, honoring Jesus, the reverence for Christ in our homes and in our marriages. Ephesians 5, through 24, let's continue. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Again, oh man, not a popular concept in our world today, but when you understand the heart of God in this, he's saying this is like the sun ruling over the day and bringing everything you need for life. Why submission? Because the heart of the husband should be, I want to care for you. I want you to have the very best in the same way that Jesus Christ has the very best for his bride, for his church. It's such a beautiful picture that's painted here. The picture that we see in marriage of the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus with nothing but good things for his bride. It says that his desire is to present his bride spotless, without blemish before the Father. And as husbands, that we would start in a place and say, my desire is to care for my wife in such a way that I just brag on her, I present her as being the most amazing woman, caring for her, looking out for her, taking care of those needs, shining light and bringing life into the home. That's what headship is about. Man, it makes it easy to submit to something like that. It's not that lording over, that domination, but rather it's a covering and a care and a protection that God intends. He says to the wife, submit to your husbands as, us to, as to the Lord. What about when he's being a jerk? <laughs> what about when he's just, well, he's, not, he's not making good decisions? We don't have to go along with bad decisions. But there's something of an honoring of the role and the authority that God has given that when we start despising the role and the authority of God in a person's life, we're despising God himself. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. When I stop submitting and honoring the role that someone has in my life, I'm saying to the Lord, you know what, you messed up, and I know better. And the damage we do isn't to the other person, it's to ourselves. It's to our understanding of who we are and who God is in our lives. Now, I am not suggesting at all that you submit yourself to abuse. I'm not suggesting that that you stay in a situation that's dangerous or hurtful. But it's become too easy in our world to go, we, we use this term, we hear it in divorce, irreconcilable differences. Basically, read between the lines, we're not willing to put in the work that's needed. 
And I'm, I'd rather go find something easier. And guess what? Easier doesn't exist. Easier doesn't exist because marriage is hard no matter where you are, no matter who you are. And so too many, too many marriages end before they've even had a chance to really start, to get off the ground. God says, submit. Recognizing the role and the responsibility and the authority of someone in your life. We get to model that in marriage. We get to model that for our children. We get to model that even in this place, in this church. But then Paul says to the husbands in Ephesians 5, 25 and 30, through 33, Husbands, love your wives. Notice it's not the same command. He doesn't say, uh, wives, love your hus- uh, wives love your husbands and husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands and uh, husbands submit to your wives. That's not how he packages this. He gives us different instructions. Why? Because we're different. We're not the same. We don't have the same role. This is not an equality issue. And, and I think in our world, in our culture, in our context, uh, the, the fight has become one of equality. Well, we're created equal in Christ. We have all of the rights. It doesn't matter man, woman, husband, wife. We have all of the rights in Christ. We are sons and daughters of the Most High with everything that comes with it. So the issue isn't equality. What we end up fighting for in our culture is sameness. And God hasn't created us to be same. He's caused us to be complementary. And you can't be complementary if you're the same. If you ever looked at a color wheel, right, when you were in school, and you had complementary colors, we're not the same color. Can you imagine a world where everything was the same color? How boring. Yet God has created this beautiful blue sky, and then he's placed these beautiful green trees. And they look good together, don't they? We were up in the mountains yesterday after the rain and then the clouds had cleared and the sky is just amazing. And you have the trees in front of that sky and it's beautiful because God says, I'm going to create diversity and the diversity will complement each other. In marriage, a man and a woman who are so different can come together and say, wow, that's beautiful. That's amazing. Look how those things complement If we will submit to Christ and stop for a second and say, Lord, what do you have? Husbands, love your wives. It's a big job. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish holy and blameless in the same way, in the same way. Listen to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And then he says to husbands, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's powerful, church. Then as husbands, when we understand that we are supposed to love our wives sacrificially, just as Jesus gave his life for the church, to care for his bride, to present his bride. Wow, if husbands, if we could get that into our understanding and start living that way and caring for our wives, man, things would turn around in our homes. Things would turn around in our homes. 
But we have grown up in a world that says, you know what, it's you first. You do what you want first. It's about what you want, how you want to live. And we move into, we get married and we move into a house and we live mutually exclusive lives doing what we want to do and not caring or giving a rip about the other person. God says, no, I've designed you to care for each other. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to the loving care of your husbands. In the same way that God says, I have care and I love you as a bride and I want to care about you. But we have to come to a place where we say, God, I surrender all and I say, you have your way. Care for me the way you need to care for me, not the way that I think I need to be cared for. Because most days I don't know what I need. I don't know what I need. I would usually pick wrong for myself. But when I say, Lord, do you have your way in the same way in marriage, when we care for each other in that kind of way, amazing things take place. After all, continuing, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. We just read that in Genesis. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The fall introduced confusion and brokenness into the world. The kind of brokenness that we couldn't recover from ourselves. But the loving and gracious care of our Lord, of our God, he says, you know what? I've got a redemption plan in place. And if you want to walk that redemption plan, if you want to walk that, that process of being conformed to the image of Christ in your marriage, there's things that you have to get out of your thinking and out of your heart. And there's things that you need to introduce and say, Lord, I want to do this your way and not my way. And I recognize, Lord, man, I, there's days I just want to care about myself and love myself. And I would never say, well, I don't want to love my wife, but I know there's days where I behave in a way that's not loving towards her. And I have to stop and say, Lord, get rid of those things in me that would cause me as a husband to not care for and love my wife the way that you want her to be loved and cared for. See, because as a husband, the headship and the authority that flows, God's saying, I'm going to give you and pour into you what you need to care for your wife and care for your family. But if I'm not receiving from God what I need, man, they're going to get the dregs, the leftovers. So the responsibility of the husband to step up and say, Lord, you direct me in this. You get rid of the things, the attitudes and the, and the selfishness that would be there, and you have your way. Let me orient myself to who you are, to the cornerstone. See, because when I orient my life as a husband, and, and, and when Megan orients herself as a wife, and the same in your home, when we orient ourselves to Jesus, that cornerstone then allows us to stand in our homes in a place of authority, to build that greenhouse and say, God, you do something amazing in this place. But when we disregard that, when we disregard who the cornerstone is, it wreaks all kinds of havoc. God says, I'm limited in what I can do in that environment. It's like smashing out the windows of the greenhouse. When I look at the world around, as I mentioned earlier, Megan and I are passionate about marriage because 
I've been a youth pastor, I've been a senior pastor, I've been a missions pastor, and I've done all of these different roles in the church. And here's what I recognize. It comes back to marriage. You want healthy kids? Work on marriage. You want a healthy church? Work on marriage. You want to see things growing in your community and thriving in your community? Address marriage. See, Satan knew that in the garden. He knew that if he came between a husband and a wife, if he wreaked havoc in that relationship, things would fall apart. Thank God that he had a plan that was bigger and greater than that, and he didn't end up at a place going, oh no, now what do I do? He worked a plan. We're in a place today, in a world today, where marriage is in trouble. I got to talk to a pastor and his wife in Kenya. Man, and they were struggling. Just struggling. Struggling to be on the same page. Struggling to be united. Struggling to speak. When you talk, and then talk to them about their church. Man, their church is struggling. This is not a, a Western issue, a Western problem. This is pervasive. It's around the world. Because the enemy knows I can bring division. But we have to orient ourselves. We have to stop and say, God, what do you have? So as I mentioned earlier, today was just really a kind of the broad picture. Not a lot of you're not leaving today with some practical steps to say, other than orient yourself to Jesus. And we'll talk next week about uh, some some next steps in marriage. How do you get back back to those to that place where you're honoring the Lord in your marriage and honoring each other? We're going to talk about that word honor and what that means. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the needs of husbands and wives. Not the same, right? Not the same. We don't have the same needs, and when we understand that, man, it makes life a lot easier. But this morning, as you leave, as we get ready to pray. You would look at your own life and your own circumstances, whether you're married or not, divorced, no matter what your situation is, and say, Lord, help correct anything in my heart that wouldn't be oriented with what you have. Help me to become oriented in the places where I'm disoriented, where I've allowed the thinking of this world to step in and distract me from what you have. There's a lot of voices in the world. There's a lot of voices telling us how we should be married and how we should live our lives and how we should run our homes. And God's saying, no, I've got a better way. Can we stand together? We sang earlier about the storm and the wind and the wind blowing. I believe that God is wanting to do a restoration and a healing work, not just in our church and in our marriages. But I believe in the world that we live, it's, the, it's, it's one of the most critical and crucial places where we will be able to speak into people's lives and share the love of God, to share and say, you know what, there is victory for you. There is hope. You don't have to feel stuck or feel lost. Feel like I don't know how to do this, or I don't know how things get. I, I've heard testimonies of marriages that were on the brink and have come back. I got to perform a wedding a few years back. Friends of ours that had walked through a divorce, and I got to do their wedding ceremony the second time. Their little boy was at camp this week. God is a redeeming God. 
And it doesn't matter where you've been and what you've walked through. There's no point where he says, I can't work with you anymore and I can't fix that. So in your marriage, in your life, in your heart, God says this morning, I want to touch you today. I want to blow away those things that are not life-giving. And I want to bring some life into you. I want to pour life into you like you've never had it before. The Father this morning, orient orient our hearts to you. You are our cornerstone. Help us, Lord, every day to make sure that we're lining up with you. That we're looking to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, that we're not introducing our, our, our own ideas, our own thoughts, Lord. Basing things on our, on our own emotion or the ideas of this world. But Lord, that we would come to you, come to your word and say, God, what are you calling us to? As husbands, Lord, how can I be the husband that you've designed and created me to be? Fulfilling the role that you've called me to step into as the head of the home. As wives, Lord God, teach, teach us to submit to you first and then to each other. Lord, even within the body of Christ in this place, Lord, that we would be a blessing to each other, not seeking to, to, to meet our own needs or be self-serving, to be a blessing to each other, to serve one another in reverence for you. Lord, I pray for healing and wholeness for the marriages in your community. God, I pray that the enemy's power or his authority, what he perceives as power and authority, Lord, would just be cut off in Jesus' name. Lord, we recognize that the enemy has no place, no authority. And while he might bring his lies, God, that we can resist him, and the word says that he has to flee. Lord, I pray that the lies that have been believed in our homes and in our marriages, Lord, would be corrected. That the lives would be, lies would be removed and your life would come. Your word says in John 10, Lord, that the enemy seeks to steal and kill and destroy. It's what he's been doing since the beginning of time. But Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you've come that we might have life. And life abundantly in our personal walk with you, in our homes, in our marriages, in this church, and in this community. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.